Good morning. You're probably already in Acts chapter 10. That's where we'll be today, Acts chapter 10. Before I pray, uh, just want to remind us that we're trying to walk through this little catechism with the younger people in the church. So probably I'm going to ask the question from time to time or most weeks. Question number two is, what is God? And God is the creator of all things living and unliving. And I would have added, if they had let me edit the book, he is the sustainer of all things. So that's what we're trying to teach all of us. Who is God? He is the creator of all things animate and inanimate. So I'm trying to... Uh, do this actually with my granddaughter. Uh, whenever she is over, I'm working on question number two with her. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you that we have the privilege to handle your word today, to hear your word. May it penetrate our hearts and our lives. May it not just be something that is read, but something that transforms our life. We want to know the meaning to the original audience and then the application to today and then to live it out. Father, as we continue our study in the book of Acts, allow Acts chapter 10 to speak to us to allow us to know what we ought to think and how we ought to react, how we ought to live and to worship you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. In Mahatma Gandhi's autobiography, he talks about the days that he was in law school at the University of London. And while he was in law school in London, a number of friends that he had were born-again believers. In fact, he tells us that he was particularly impressed by the lives that these born-again believers lived, the transformation that was evident in their lives. He was so impacted, he thought, maybe I'm going to become a Christ follower. He says one of the things that was so impacting was not these, only these transformed lives, but that there was no caste system in Scripture, a problem in his India and his Hindu faith. So one day he got up. It was a Sunday morning. He was going to a church. I think he went to the wrong one. His idea was to sit through the service and then afterwards he was going to ask the pastor how he could be saved from his sins. He didn't get to the sermon. He didn't get to the service. He walked in and an usher walked up to him and said, you don't really belong here. You ought to go worship with your kind. And so he left. He thought, you know, if Christianity has a caste system... It's no better than what I've grown up in. There's no need to change. Now, if that account is true, it is in his autobiography. If that account is true, 
What a detrimental effect on multitudes. What could have been and what is. Because somebody in a church did not live out the faith as God instructs. As I think about prejudice, bigotry, something most of us in this room hate, and rightfully so. I recall a time when I was in the Dominican Republic. I was there teaching a theology conference. I happened to be in a car with my friend Jorge, a Dominican, and we went by something that caught my eye. I'll be honest, it was a golf course. (laughs) And I said, hey, I want to go see that. And my friend said, I'm not allowed in there. They don't allow my kind. And I was stunned. I said, oh, now we're going. We are going in there. Pull in. And we pulled up to the gate. And the guard was explaining that we're not allowed in there. And I passed him my passport. And suddenly he smiled and welcomed us in because I had a U.S. passport and a really bad tan. And Jorge had a Dominican passport and a really good tan. And because of my passport, I was allowed in and I could bring my friend in. I was disgusted and dismayed. That's the way bigotry, prejudice works. If you've been to the Dominican, I'm I'm using that country because I know many of you have been there. You've probably been to the Batays. The Batays are the sugar cane plantations where we get much of our sugar. It's modern day slavery, really. It's not Dominicans who are enslaved, but it's Haitians that are enslaved. They have crossed the border for a job. They live in squalor. They owe their soul to the company store as the old song used to go. They only work six or seven or eight months out of the year, but they live in housing by the Batays, they always owe the Batays more than, or the company more than they make. And until about a year or so ago, you couldn't even educate your children on the Batays because they wouldn't allow schools there, guaranteeing that the next generation would stay on the plantation to do their work. That is evil in every way. That's prejudicial bigotry. Bigotry is looking at externals and making evaluations. I'd like to take a moment and give us a little asterisk, but it's a very important one. You see, people today in my society will sometimes label my views to be prejudicial or bigoted. There is a difference between standing on biblical truth with charity and grace than bigotry that makes externals the driving force. Think with me what Isaiah says in Isaiah 5.20. He said, woe, woe is you if you call good evil and evil good. Woe is you. If you call darkness light and light darkness, woe if you call what is bitter sweet and what is sweet bitter. What is he saying? 
He's saying where God has spoken on moral absolutes, we are to obey. And it is righteousness, not bigotry, that drives certain values. And yet we live in a day and age where if you take some moral absolutes and hold them firmly but with grace, some will call you prejudicial or bigoted. That is not bigotry, that's righteousness. Bigotry is looking at unimportant externals and making evaluations about the internal person. Bigotry is this. It's walking down the street and having a different opinion if you pass somebody who is white or black or Asian or Hispanic or mixed uh, of several different nationalities and forming an opinion based upon pigmentation. That's bigotry and it's wrong. Bigotry is when I see somebody who is wealthy or middle class or poor and based upon their economic status, I make evaluations of who they are. That is evil and it is wrong. Bigotry is taking externals like whether somebody has a tattoo or a piercing or not and making an external into an evaluation of an internal. There is a difference between one's preference and making an evaluation of someone's inner heart. You may have a preference for some things or a preference against some things, and that's morally neutral. But to then evaluate someone's heart based on that, that becomes bigotry. Bigotry is seeing some guy up on stage with a dick butt kiss jersey <laughs> and saying, what kind of church is this? And I understand where you're coming from. I'm having trouble with it myself. <laughs> Bigotry is focused on externals and evaluating the heart based on it. I want to pick up in the text and I want to read Acts 10, verses 1 and 2. At Caesarea, we would say today Caesarea Maritima, because there's two Caesareas in Israel. Caesarea Maritima is just north of Tel Aviv. It was built in 20 BC by King Herod or Herod the Great. It was actually built as a Roman citizen or for Roman citizens. It was built as a city dedicated to Jupiter, so it was an idolatrous place. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed continuously to God. So here we are introduced to a man named Cornelius, and we are told that he is a Roman soldier. Now, the Roman army was divided into legions. That would be 6,000 men. Cohorts, that would be 600 men. And centuries, led by a centurion. 
generally 100, though if you read the literature, we have a high of about 182 and we have a low of about 60. They were all called centuries, but it was referring to what was normally about 100 individuals led by a non-commissioned officer who was the backbone of the Roman army and he would lead individuals to do most of the work. Now Cornelius is not only a centurion, a non-commissioned officer, but he is a God-fearer. It says that he feared God and he gave alms and even the Jews thought well of him. A God-fearer is an individual who has turned his back on idolatry. For him, that would have turned his back on the Roman pantheon. He didn't worship Apollo or Venus. He didn't intergage or intermix with the false gods or goddesses of Rome. He had understood that God is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He had also begun to understand in the synagogue that God is three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, a Trinitarian God, God one, and God is three. He had begun to understand that salvation was by faith in Jesus Christ. He's in the the period of time where the synagogues are eventually going to divide between those who stay in Judaism and those who go to Christianity. He could be part of the life of the synagogue and in fact was, yet he is not a circumcised man, so he could not be integrally part of the Jewish synagogue. But this account is about more than Cornelius. It's also about Peter. Peter is 30 miles away in Joppa, so there's 30 miles between them, but there's a lot more than 30 miles that separates them. Cornelius is a Roman. He's a member of the occupiers, the conquerors, the one that demands tribute to Caesar. He's of the most hated race if you are a Jew. And Peter, he's a Jew. Romans were taught that they were superior, and if there was an inferior race, it was probably the Jews. And so Romans hated Jews. Jews hated Rome. I could make the case both ways, but I'm only going to make the case from a Jewish perspective of a Roman. You see, not only in the Old Testament do you have the 39 books, but you also have what came out of the Old Testament, the oral traditions. Now, we know a lot about the oral traditions because about 100 years later, a man named Rabbi Hanasi, he wrote down the oral traditions in the Mishnah. And they're a commentary on the Bible. Sometimes they're a very good commentary. Often they're a very bad commentary. But if you grew up as a Jew in the first century, you not only got the 39 books, but you got the commentary as well. Not biblical, but this is what you were taught. You were taught that if you were a Jewish midwife and there was a Gentile woman giving birth and she needed to be helped, she needed aid, you could not help her. Better that she die and not bring a sinner into the world than a Jewish midwife helping her. You were taught that if you were a Jewish doctor and a Gentile were on the edge of life, you could not help that individual. Better that the Gentile die than you do an act of mercy. Gentiles were referred to as goyim. 
Now that is a morally neutral word. It actually just means nation. But that's not how a Jew was taught to say it. They were taught to spit it out as a slur, an ethnic slur, a, a degrading, you goyim, which meant something very, very dirty and very bad. It actually got so ridiculous that if you needed milk, you could not buy milk from a Gentile because that was a Gentile cow. And if you needed eggs, you could not buy eggs from a Gentile chicken because that was not good for your health. And that's the way Peter was raised. That was the culture that he was in. And I could make the same case for Cornelius towards Peter as Peter towards Cornelius. With that little background, let's pick up in verse 3. And I want to read all the way to 16. About the ninth hour, that would be three in the afternoon of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to him and said to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? That is just master. What is it, master? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa, 30 miles away, and bring one Simon, who is also called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him and departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, it's noon, it's lunchtime, and he went up to pray. He's praying when he's about to learn that his heart is filled with bigotry and prejudicial activity. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being led down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. What a vision. It's lunchtime. Peter goes up to pray. Some people are preparing his meal. His stomach is grumbling. He's hungry. And suddenly he has a vision. He has a vision of a sheet coming down with four corners. Most commentators believe the four corners represent the four corners of the earth. In other words, it refers to all the people, the 7.8 billion people, and on it are all sorts of animals. It really isn't about kosher or non-kosher. It's not really about animals. They represent humanity. Now, if you've read Leviticus chapter 11 or any of the kosher laws, you know that as a Jew, there are certain things you can eat and there are certain things you cannot you have a kosher diet that is in keeping with the law or an unkosher diet that does not keep the law that was given to the Jews. But thankfully, Matthew 5, 17 was fulfilled by Christ for us. So we are no longer under the bondage of the law. Well, he is still under the bondage of the law or so we thought 
though Christ fulfilled it. He hasn't yet gotten that. And so he looks at these animals. And remember, he's hungry. It's noon. People are preparing food. And he sees an unholy smorgasbord. There's probably owls and reptiles. There's probably all sorts of pork, buzzards. These are all animals he's not allowed to eat. And a voice comes, and the voice is clearly from God. And the voice says, take up, kill, and eat. And you remember his response. It's almost comical if it weren't so painful. He says, by no means, Lord. If God is the Lord, you don't say, by no means. If God is the Lord, you say, yes. If God is the Lord, you and I obey. But Peter is in a long line of individuals, sometimes Christ followers, who say, by no means, Lord. And when we embrace the morals of today rather than the morals of Scripture, we essentially say, by no means, Lord. And when we live our lives for ourselves rather than for the Lord, we say by no means, Lord. Matthew 6, 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. And I say, but it's my time, my talents, my treasures, my recreation, my, and I say by no means, Lord, or maybe I'm a little more subtle. I don't actually say that to God. I just do what I want which really says, by no means, Lord. The text is going to teach Peter, it's going to teach Jeff that what God says is clean, what God says is good, what God says is pure, needs to be what I say is clean, what is good and what is poor, pure. The four corners representing the teeming 7.8 billion people is telling Peter that there are not unclean and clean, all are made in the Imago Dei, all are made in the image of God. Christ died for all, but it only has effect for those who believe in Christ. And it's my job. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be ye reconciled to God. It's my job, it's yours, to tell others about Christ. Think of the implications of a Bible without Acts 10. Think of the view of an apostle Peter without Acts 10. He would have eliminated world missions. He would have eliminated the need to share the gospel with those who do not have Jewish faith. He would have eliminated the vast majority of every person in this room for the need of the gospel and salvation by Christ. There be no need for evangelism, no need for missions, no need for churches that are not uh, messianic Jewish synagogues, no need for any other because there's no need for salvation for the Gentile world. How tragic this would be. As I thought about the text, I thought of a man named Dr. Harry Ironside. I don't know if that's a name that means anything to you, he was a preacher of yesteryear, kind of out of my Dallas Theological Seminary heritage. And uh, Dr. Harry Ironside really never knew his father. His father died of typhoid when Harry was two years old. His father's name was John. And towards the end of his life, uh, he had dementia. 
And uh, he was on his deathbed. And for whatever reason, this Bible scholar, John, was some way, in some way was thinking of Acts 10. And he kept saying, a big sheet and beast and, and he couldn't remember it. And so he'd say it again, a big sheet and beast end. And he couldn't remember it. He said it a third time. And someone said, oh, and creepy things. And John said, yes, right. That's what I am, a creepy thing, saved by grace, along with the other creepy things. He didn't remember much, but he remembered the gospel. The gospel is creepy things from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Revelation 4 and 5 who have come to the end of ourselves, confessed that we are sinners, and the power of God's Spirit turned from our sin and believed in Christ. That's the great lesson that Peter learns. He learns about the Imago Dei, the image of God. Who is made in the image of God? 7.8 billion people. Who is made in the image of God? Oh, people who vote like me, probably. People who root for the teams I root for, probably. People who have embraced biblical truths, they're made in the image of God. The rest, I'm not sure. But that's not what scripture says. Male and female, he made them. In the image of God, he created them. All are made in the Imago Dei. All matter to God. That was the problem of Jonah. I mentioned him last week. I'm gonna go a little further. You remember God came to his prophet, his disobedient prophet, Jonah, and he said, I want you to board a ship. I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go in and preach. Preach repentance. And you remember that Jonah goes in the opposite direction towards Spain to Tarshish. And you remember he ends up getting thrown overboard or the ship would have been shipwrecked and a fish uh, swallows him and spits him up on the land. And so he goes into the city because God told him he must. And if you've been in the belly of a fish for three days, you're going to obey God. But he only obeys God a little bit. He goes one day in a three days type of city. He only preaches a little bit. Why? Because he hates these people who are not like him. Maybe with good reason. Last week, I just left it out. He hates the Ninevites because two times prior, and probably three, but we know historically two, The Ninevites had come and ransacked the Jews. That is true. I'm going to add to it. The city of Nineveh was a huge city. It was a three-day walk type of city. But what we know is around the gates, they had large poles all the way around the city. And especially wherever you would enter the city, they had lots of these poles. But what I didn't tell you is on the edge of those poles were the decapitated heads of Jews. That's historical fact. No wonder Jonah doesn't want to go into the city. No wonder he wants to sit under a gourd that God gives him to shade him from the sun. And he wants the city to be destroyed because these are not his people. They don't have his beliefs. They don't value his God. They would vote quite differently than Jonah. And so he's not going in there. In fact, he is angry at God for sending him there or potentially rescuing these people. In America, the divide is great. I don't think the divide anymore is 
mostly ethnic, ethnic or skin color, that still exists. I think the divide now is even more moral and political. And we know who's in our tribe and we know who is not in our tribe. As I mentioned from Isaiah 5.20, God has given moral absolutes. That's not tribal, that's just righteousness. And we obey what God says. Whether culture calls us bigots or not, that's not a true label. It's not a fair label. We still stand where God has spoken. What are some of those issues? There's so many. There's marriage between one man and one woman and intimacy is only within marriage. We got all the way to Genesis 2, 18 to 25 to learn that. And marriage is only between a husband and a wife. Genesis 1 and 2 gives us that. God chooses our gender. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he made them. A child within the womb is one fashioned by God himself. Psalm 139, 13 to 16. These are moral absolutes. And where God has spoken, it's righteous to hold them with grace, but with tenacity. But it's unrighteous if we hold them with hatred and vitriol and we always have an us versus them mentality. That's ungodly and it doesn't help our witness to a world that is lost. The four corners of the sheet came down and Peter was told, don't call common or unclean what I have called clean all are made in the image of God. Essentially, all are unclean because we are sinners. But God desires to make all clean. All matter to him. And he has claimed for himself people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. All matter to God. All ought to matter to us. And what was Peter doing when he learned this lesson? He's praying, which means we can be very involved in spiritual things and yet miss the boat that all people are made in God's image. All people matter. Well, let me pick up and read verses 17 to 23. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. You gotta love verse 23. Peter has made a lifetime of getting this wrong. He has been ingrained to hate Gentiles, to want nothing to do with Gentiles. God gives him a vision three different times. In the same trance, he's given this vision. And now Peter gets it right. He's like us. When we are going down a certain path and then we see the word of God hit us 
and we suddenly say, oh, I've been going the wrong path. I confess I agree with God. I turn and I repent and I go in the other direction. And so we read in verse 23, Peter goes down and he invites the men into the house. That's unthinkable. They're Gentiles. A Jew would never invite a Gentile into the house. Likely they're military. They're Roman. It is unthinkable to have a Gentile, how much more to have an occupier, a conqueror, the one that makes you give tribute to Caesar. He invites them in the house. And the next thing he goes, he goes on a 30 mile trip to the house of Cornelius. God is moving in his heart. And we pick up and read 34 to 36. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Now he's beginning to apply scripture. He's beginning to apply theology to how he lives. Initially, Jews are in, Gentiles are out. Now he's understanding Romans 1, that we are all at enmity with God. We are born as sinners and we have a propensity to sin and we live that out. And therefore we need to be reconciled to God. Romans 1 says that we are at enmity. We are enemies of the cross. And if we don't believe it, think of this. When God became man, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, what did we do? We murdered him. Humanity murdered him. And he was thrust with our sin upon him. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We live in a day and age where people say, I'm okay, you're okay. If you die, you go into the big blue sky. Jesus says, no, not true. I came that you might have life. I came to give you eternal life through faith in Christ. And so here we have Peter who thinks first Jew good, Gentile bad. He has his vision given to him three times. And now he says, I have seen this. And the peace of Christ goes to all people. God desires to reconcile all people but it has effect only on those who by faith believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. As I think of the, stat, the, the text and I step back, these are the takeaways that are important to me. I want to remember Isaiah 5.20. Woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who would call darkness light and light darkness. And woe to those who would call bitter sweet and sweet bitter. In other words, even if my society labels me in a certain way, I cannot change biblical truth. I need to live out and embrace biblical truth regardless of how society reacts. But I need to do so without hatred, without vitriol. In fact while standing firmly on biblical truth, I am to care for the teeming 7.8 billion people because all are made in the Imago Dei in the image of God. All matter to the Lord. All desperately need Jesus Christ. And I am to care for them. I am to be missional 
to care for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8, that's how the book began. And that's actually how the book is carried out where we see the gospel go to Jerusalem and then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. This becomes my obligation and it becomes yours. And I've got to stop thinking tribally. My people. I want to think all people. All people matter to God. I will vote differently. I will act differently, hopefully. But I care for all people. For all people matter to God. And so that's the balance of the gospel. The gospel, salvation by faith in Christ alone saves. And as it saves us, it transforms us. And we stand on the principles and tenets and the morals and the absolutes of scripture. But we do so with grace, knowing that people who do not yet have Christ might be very far from us in many ways, but they matter to the Lord and therefore they must matter to us. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the book of Acts and what we can learn and how we can be transformed by it. Examples of some godly lives and some ungodly lives things that we ought to do and things that we ought to shun. Thank you for this historical book that is alive and teaches us about you and how we ought to live as acts of worship to you. Father, allow the head knowledge to be transformed into life application within us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.